Hey, I know you're here for the podcast, but give me 30 seconds to talk about a new service we just released for anyone working in a CPG brand. Finding the perfect co-packer or supplier can be a real pain. You spend hours Googling options, texting your colleagues, asking around different Slack groups, and still you get nothing. That's why we created Fiddle Connect Consulting, a done-for-you service that does all of the hard work of finding your dream co-packer or supplier. Best of all, it's 100% guaranteed and you get three free months of Fiddle Inventory Operations software included. Interested? Just go to lp.fiddle.io forward slash FCC. That's lp.fiddle.io forward slash FCC. Now, on with the episode. Welcome to the Physical Product Movement, a podcast by Fiddle. We share stories of the world's most ambitious and exciting physical product brands to help you capitalize on the monumental change in how, why, and where consumers buy. I'm your host, Ken Ojuka. this episode, I speak with Amy Zeidelman, CEO and co-founder of Sum Foods, a sister-owned tahini products company. Their products are used by award-winning restaurants and chefs around the world. Amy is pretty impressive. She's been featured on the Forbes 30 Under 30, and she's also the author of The Tahini Table. Amy tells the founding story of Sum Foods, how she and her sisters identified tahini as a great ingredient, used heavily in other parts of the world, but underrepresented in the United States market. She talks about the challenges and opportunities of selling a product in a category that is less well-known. She also talks about the early days of loading up her bags with jars of tahini and cold calling on restaurants and stores. And finally, Amy outlines some of the surprising benefits of targeting wholesale channels first before eventually going direct to consumer. Amy is a great entrepreneur with a lot to share. I hope you enjoy. Hey, Amy, thank you for joining us on the podcast. I appreciate you taking the time. How are you doing? Great, thanks. So glad to be here. Yeah, so we were talking just a little bit. You're out on the East Coast, right? Like in the Philadelphia area? area? In Philly itself, yes. Zoom HQ is um, in Northern Philadelphia, if you're familiar with the area. Yeah, yeah. So what, what are you close to? We are close to the PSPCA and St. Christopher's Hospital, just north of Fishtown and Kensington. Okay. Yeah, I know the area. I spent a couple of years out in, in Philadelphia myself. We like to kick off the podcast with a quote. Is there a quote or a definition or something that motivates you? Do you have something in, in mind? Yes, actually. I've been working on a lot of planning with my team and um, really trying to grasp this idea of some values we've been putting together for the organization. And one of our values is quality. So not just quality products, but also quality work. And this definition of quality work really spoke to me. It says, quality work is the service or task one completes successfully within the estimated time with the end output satisfying the expectations of everyone involved including oneself. So it just really nailed it for me. It's about expectations. It's about time management. It's about, you know, uh, being accountable for your own work and what other people need from you. So that one really hit home. 
Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. And, and it sounds like you're somebody who is running a business and, you know, dealing with the challenges of, of making sure everybody's rowing in the same direction and doing their best work, you know? So we definitely want to dig into that before we get into, you know, sort of the business that you're running now, Assume Foods, what, can you just tell us a little bit about your background and where, where you're from? Yeah, I'm originally from Rockville, Maryland in the DC area. And I started Assume Foods with my two older sisters as I was graduating from college. I went to University of Delaware. My oldest sister, Shelby, went to Penn here in Philly. And my middle sister, Jackie, has been living in Israel since she graduated high school. And around the time I was graduating, Jackie was dating her boyfriend, now husband, Omri, uh, who's been in the tahina industry in Israel for, at this point, almost 20 years. So my background pre-Sume is super brief. I started the company right out of college. And yeah, it's just starting Sume that brought me to um, Philadelphia after living in Israel for a year, graduating college and doing the market research and prep for Sume. So that's a, a bit of my background. So yeah, a couple of things I want to um, touch on there. Sister owned, right? So you guys started it together. Is that, that what it sounds like? That's right. Uh, Shelby, the brains, you know, had the big idea. Jackie, mm-hmm. the heart really had the relationships to give us this opportunity. And I, the voice just kind of knew how to, I guess, bother enough people to uh, <laughs> get it off the ground. So yeah, it was a really complimentary skills and a very just kind of exciting, very organic idea that came about that we just kept taking one step after the next, after the next, after the next. And lo and behold, eight years later, 10 years later from the idea, we have a business. <laughs> Yeah. So did you always know that you wanted to start a business like right out of school or or how did that shape up? Yeah, not at all. I mean, I was not very thoughtful to my career or what I wanted to do in college. And Mm -hmm. growing up, we weren't necessarily like the entrepreneurial sisters that had lemonade stands or car washes, but both of our parents are entrepreneurs. So we grew up with work in the home, like in a pretty healthy way, surprisingly, which I think has helped us since we started the business together. So like we grew up helping our mom, she had a corporate gifts business, which is like swag before swag was cool, helping her pack bags for her clients or going to my dad's office and like stamping papers or putting three hole punches in. So I think business and entrepreneurship is in our blood. But no, I mean, even starting soon to me right out of college, I didn't really register that we were starting a business, it kind of felt like a project, like a school project, you know, okay, now you do the market research. Now you have a sales list, blah, blah, blah. And yeah, it's been an exciting journey. And actually, my middle sister, Jackie works with us part time from Israel, really managing the relationships with our manufacturers and quality assurance and our kind of eyes and ears and their connection into Ethiopia. And then my oldest sister, Shelby, just stepped out of the business as her full time job, just a couple months ago. So there's been a lot of transition also since we started together. Okay, got it. So I guess we should probably tell the audience what uh, Zoom is and (laughs) and what your product is and um, what makes it unique in the market. Good point. I think we're supposed to, I'm supposed to lead with that. If you're familiar, not familiar is tahini. Ken, I know our samples didn't reach you in time, but are, are you familiar with tahini? I am just a little bit, but 
probably not to the extent that you are. So uh, yeah, <laughs> well, I don't Let, expect that of anybody, but even knowing it a little bit is far ahead of most people still these days. Uh, tahini is made from ground sesame seeds. I like to describe it as thicker than olive oil and thinner than peanut butter, but can be used for both in savory and sweet recipes. So it's a really versatile ingredient. It's most familiar in the American market because it's used to make hummus, which a lot of people are more familiar with than just mm -hmm. the ingredient tahini itself. And our company sells tahini, um, high quality tahini and tahini products. We have a line of sweet tahini spreads that kind of play in the nut butter category. Okay, got it. Yeah, I mean, I, I know sesame butter, just, you know, my family's from Uganda and it's just something that we eat there. Oh yeah, um, what do you use it for? You know, my my mom actually makes some Ugandan dishes, you know, that, yeah. that you would you would put it in. There's actually one, and it never sounds good, but it's like one of my favorite meals is she will make and then put like a, it's like a sesame sauce in uh -huh. with it. And then you can eat that on Porsche or some people call it like fufu, but it's kind of like a cornmeal type thing that you, but you know, my mom lives in Austin and I'm in Utah. And whenever she comes to visit, I'm, I make sure that she makes me some of that. So. Oh, that um, sounds amazing. I actually have a recipe um, in my cookbook, the tahini table that uses tahini with cream greens, whether it's spinach or another leafy green preference. And it almost mm -hmm. becomes like a creamy sauce. Is that this? So tahini and sesame yeah. are really the same exact thing. I've never heard of it used in um, Ugandan culture because what's interesting, our sesame seeds grow in Ethiopia, but they don't use sesame seeds or sesame paste or tahini in Ethiopian cuisine, which I always found very fascinating. But oh, would you be willing to share your mother's recipe? Yeah, well, it's her recipe, so I'll ask her, but I'm sure. Right, her recipe, yeah. I should say. No, I, but let's definitely sync up after. I'd, I'd be happy to introduce the two of you. And, I appreciate and, um, that. But yeah, I mean, and then just in general, like just eating sesame, I remember eating a lot of like sesame candy, you know, yeah. growing up. It's not really something that we do a lot here in the United States. You know, no. at least I don't see it, but, yep. but sesame is just used, I think, a lot more in Ugandan culture. So that's really interesting. I, I wanted to dig into the connection to Israel, you know, so you uh -huh. mentioned you have a sister there. So yeah, what's the connection? And, 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 and then how did you decide to start selling tahini? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, dumb and young, I like to say. We were just dumb and young. <laughs> but yeah, our connection to Israel is via, I mean, in terms of a uh, stronger connection is via Jackie. Jackie's lived in Israel now for almost 15 years and has decided to marry an Israeli and have Israeli children there. And so, but as a family, we've been visiting Israel since 2000, actually. And so we have distant cousins that ended up in Israel. I mean, a lot of our ancestors or family distribution was through the late 1800s. And of course, like World War II uh, after that. Um, and mm -hmm. Our family came from Eastern Europe in like the late 1800s, but straight to the States. But there were a lot of relatives that either went to Palestine at the time or ended up in Israel after World War II, but not in my immediate family. And, okay. you know, we love the... We love the food in Israel. I mean, anybody that goes there will agree it's probably its leading most best aspect of it. <laughs> and besides <laughs> the, the beaches, and I guess there are lots of other things too we love about it. And, you know, that connection to Israel and connection to Omri's family and really seeing this premium ingredient that was so underappreciated in our culture and how we grew up. 
just opened our eyes. And, you know, Shelby studied entrepreneurship. And as I said, you know, our family just, I think, has it in our blood. And we really just felt this yearning to bring high quality tahini to the States, right? To open up the American market and American consumers to this amazing ingredient that's so coveted in different parts of the world. So that's our connection to Israel. And also really what inspired us to start this was when we did that market research early on, we found that there really wasn't very good tahini available in the States. Most people had no idea what it was. If they didn't know what it was, they were only using it for at least in the States, most people, one reason, which was to make hummus and then throwing it away six months later because they didn't know what else to do or it got really separated and hard to deal with. And when you have a good tahini available, it just opens up your kitchen. It just makes everything better. Like it's such a great ingredient to cook with, which your mom being familiar with it can probably attest to. It really is very friendly with uh, within lots of different types of recipes. So yeah, let's unpack that just a little bit. So, you know, for people who don't have experience with tahini, right? Mm-hmm. What do you typically make with it? You know, what do you guys recommend and how do you educate people on how to use it? Yeah, uh, the most traditional way that it's used in Middle Eastern culture, which is my real, you know, connect original, I should say, connection to it. Now we've seen tahini and sesame paste through the lens of so many cuisines. It's really inspiring. But you mix tahini with water and lemon juice and some garlic and maybe a spice like cumin. And that becomes a sauce, a fairly thick sauce. And that's what people use to blend with cooked chickpeas to make hummus. Mm. But you can also use that sauce to mix it with greens, like your mom, honestly, kind of like what your mom does to make like a creamier, you know, greens dip. You can add tahini into soups to make it creamier. You can use tahini as a substitute for the oil, like I was saying, and peanut butter uh, when you're baking with it. The versatility for savory and sweet is unlimited. And that's how we spend a lot of our resources in connecting with potential customers and current customers is in that consumer education. We really want people likely to bring tahini in because they found it through a recipe that was like familiar to them and that they wanted to cook immediately. But what we want people to do is to then reach for that jar a second, third, of course, every day kind of time, um, because you can use it in so many ways. Yeah, yeah. So that's maybe let's double click on that a little bit. You know, so you're selling a a product that maybe isn't necessarily, you know, well known or well understood uh, in in our culture. You know, I want to talk just a little bit about some of the challenges and, and opportunities of doing that, right? I'm sure, you know, in, in our audience, we've got, you know, people who have had the experience of traveling somewhere, trying something new and, you know, having their kind of socks knocked off by just, <laughs> oh man, you know, this is amazing. You know, what are, what are some of the, the, the challenges um, of bringing in something new, you know, or, or uh, not, maybe not necessarily yeah. new, but, but yeah. less known, right? Less yeah. common. Yeah. Or, or even like misunderstood, right? Like yeah, yeah. tahini, like there's nothing new about tahini. It is such an ancient ingredient. Sesame seeds themselves are one of the most ancient, if not the first like cultivated seed for baking. And, and it's amazing, really the historical relevance and then its nutritional benefit on top of that. I'd say what's difficult is it's, like you said, I don't, it is difficult, meaning that it will take a long time, but it's not difficult in that if you really 
believe in this product, this ingredient, and you really immerse yourself in it or find the right people around you that can contribute to that education, then if it's a good product and you have all a lot of other things, obviously, in a row, like it's not so hard. It's really sharing, you know, sharing information, sharing samples. I set up in so many, even just small farmers markets, handing out a small spoonful of tahini. Now you don't really eat tahini plain, but I didn't know how else to get people to try it. Right. And then to explain to them, you can use this in your, you know, um, apple crumble, or you can use it in a salad with that kale that you're buying. It was, it's like so much opportunity to share with people. And also I think, deferring to the recipient right to the listener what do they like or like what do they have in their cart I used to do all the time when I was demoing at stores like Whole Foods I'd look and so many people this was in 2017 had kale in their cart and Mm -hmm. you know I had kale recipe a kale with tahini salad dressing recipes on my little demo table and I wouldn't even offer people a sample I'd offer them the recipe card And so, you know, I think that that is the most exciting and fun time of at least my, you know, now journey in this business was that beginning when like anybody and still today, anybody that didn't know about tahini before that I had the opportunity to tell them about for 30 seconds or for three minutes or however long it's like, it is just such an opportunity. It's very unlimited and it's an exciting time for sure in the stage of the business. Right, right. So let's actually go back to that beginning. So you identified, you know, this product that you guys, you know, and I guess I'm assuming that was the first product you guys started selling. Did, you know, did you go ahead and just get it manufactured and then bring it in and try to sell or, you know, what were the first things that you guys did? We did at that market research stage where we've talked with a few different potential customers. We talked with grocery stores, like small co-op owners and independent shops. I even stopped into larger chains just to talk with the clerks to see where tahini was merchandised in the grocery store. Uh, We talked with chefs at restaurants that was really integral in Sum's success and foundation through all of this, which we can circle back to because it's like, I think a really interesting conversation. And then we also talked with like large scale manufacturers and we got this sense that at least there were some people that would buy this product. Like we were a little naive. We were really, what we said was if this manufacturer bought our tahini, then that would be enough. There's like a Jewish phrase called like Dayenu, like that's enough. And that was kind of a joke. That was like the impetus of us even registering the business was like, let's just see if we can get tahini to this big customer. They're great friends of ours and they still don't buy our tahini eight years later. So lesson learned, but you know, we also <laughs> saw these like couple of grocery stores and what was really integral to us was a conversation with a chef named Mike Solomonov here in Philadelphia that has Mm -hmm. an award-winning Israeli restaurant called Zahav. And he was really buying into good tahini. He didn't have good tahini. He, you know, really saw the benefit, the value of good tahini and was one of our really first customers. So once we had that little bit of confidence behind us now, totally naive and ignorant, dumb and young, let's go back to that. We're like, let's start a business. And so Thank God for Omri, right? And his experience in the tahini industry in Israel, he introduced us to several manufacturers and we chose a manufacturer to work with to start. We've since had several manufacturers and we really just placed an order. I mean, they gave us no terms. We had to buy 10,000 pounds of tahini upfront and we figured out, I worked with a supply chain consultant for Mm -hmm. about 
four months to schedule the first import and find a warehouse for storage. And then I just put the jars in my bag and like put a couple buckets in my car. And I started driving around, you know, I followed up with first Mike Salamanov and he loved the tahini and I started delivering to him every week. And then I would make a list of restaurants and grocery stores and ice cream shops. And I still think everybody will buy tahini, but that has been very refined since the early days. And I really right. just went around handing out jars of Sue. Okay. Big 16 ounce jars. <laughs> so, so I love the, the, the market research beforehand, right? So yeah. talk, talking to, you know, your network, you know, basically any, anybody that, that might be interested, you mentioned, you know, talking to stores. So were you talking to them before you actually had a product yes. and what would that conversation, what was that like? I just would ask questions. I would say, you know, I'm thinking about starting a business. First, I would ask, like, it was part of the market research, where is the tahini? And I would ask their opinion on tahini. And since they had no idea what it was, that was kind of like, or I guess in the more conventional stores, they had no idea what it was. Mm -hmm. In the, you know, more, I guess, early adoptive stores for a brand like Zoom and for a natural product like tahini, they were really the ones that shared with me like, oh, we have tahini, people don't buy it that much. Or a lot of them would ask me, why would I bring in more tahini if the tahini that I sell doesn't sell well? And I just listened, you know, because I didn't have a product to sell them yet. And ultimately with that knowledge, when I did have the product, I could go back and I had answers for their concerns or I was better positioned to ask them to, sell it on consignment, you know, or just let me come in and demo it one Saturday afternoon and see how it does. And yeah, that was definitely the route that I took with these smaller stores earlier on. Okay. So it sounds like you targeted smaller stores. W were there any other criteria you were looking for <laughs> or using, you know, to, to figure out where you should, you should spend your time? There should have been, but no, at the beginning, I mean, I would talk, I, I remember before I, I moved to the Philly area in January of 2013 and we got our first import in May of 2013. And I was just like working. I was actually living at my aunt and uncle's house outside the city. And I was just compiling lists of potential customers. I mean, it was every store, every ice cream store, every smoothie shop, every restaurant, every co-op. And I just really thought that everybody would buy the tahini and that's who I started talking to. It was after like, a year of selling to restaurants and selling to the smaller stores and getting rejected, obviously, from bigger stores that we were able to take a step back and then prioritize where things were working. And then we leaned really heavy into what was working and that helped us grow a lot. Okay. So what did start working? You know, what were some of the patterns and, and you know, who, who was a good buyer for your product? For us, it was the chefs, it was restaurants, because they buy not only more quantity at a time, but also in a higher velocity, right? A chef at the time, Mike Solomonov was using two buckets of tahini a week, call it, and a customer at home would buy a 16 ounce jar and it would take, and they would never finish it, right? Like mm -hmm. not even just take them six months or a year, they just wouldn't ever buy it again. And so that really started working for us. And it was at the same time as a lot of trends going on in the States, in particular, this rise of foodie and like chef culture and interest and just culinary heightening, really, I think mm -hmm. we went through in like eight, five, eight, 10 years ago, when Zoom was getting started. And so the restaurants not only provided value to us in terms of a 
you know, foundation for revenue, but also because of the influence of these chefs that have become our partners and customers. And when somebody asked Mike what tahini he was using because his hummus was so good and he said soon, that trickled down to consumers. And so it provided a lot of value for us for several reasons. And we focused there for a long time. We had our jars available on Amazon to support any kind of national interest since we were only in maybe 50 stores, you know, like scattered around here or there. And so, yeah, that's that the food service though is, was really foundational for the success and the credibility and the opportunities for Zoom. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting. I think that it's a great opportunity for a lot of, you know, CPG brands to sell to restaurants and, you know, food service businesses. But I I don't know that's an opportunity that a lot of people, you know, focus on, especially early on. What led you to actually decide to approach Mike and, you know, start selling to restaurants? Shelby, my oldest sister, went to school in Philly and also lived in Philly for a couple years after she graduated. And she was involved in a young Jewish networking group that held a lot of happy hours actually at Zahav. Before Zahav became Zahav, this bar was wide open. There was always kind of room available to stop in. And so she and Mike actually had an informal relationship just through that networking. And when Mm -hmm. we decided to start Zoom Foods, Shelby maybe ran into Mike at some point and said, you know what, my sisters and I have an idea about tahini. Do you mind if we come talk to you? And he's just a really great, nice guy. And he said, sure. And so we asked him the same questions, you know, like I was saying that we asked everybody else, which was like, what tahini are you using? And he didn't know. And, and what happened then, which we learned about the food service or Food service is a huge industry of food service management companies. I mean, there's so much opportunity in bulk, you Mm -hmm. know, universities and institutions, but our, our footholding was in this very niche restaurant kind of tier. And um, they really talk to each other. They're very collaborative and, you know, word got around that Mike was using Zoom. So a chef from this city would contact me, hey, can I have Zoom, do you sell Zoom here? And I'd kind of piece it together, right? As the demand came, I would then find, either ship it to them directly and then find a distributor in that market. And then we reached a point where I could just go to a market into a city and go with a list of 50 restaurants. And like I did in the very beginning, I did the same thing two, three years later, was just literally fill a rolly bag up with jars of tahini and hand them to people that would accept them on a list of restaurants that I had, you know, targeted. And it was a, it was a model that really worked for us. Right. And then you had references and you could say, oh, yeah, they love it in this restaurant. You know, did you have to change your product in any way in order to sell to food service businesses? No, but that's only because our product, we sold as ugly a product that we sold to restaurants. We were selling to consumers at the time. We really just sold the same only one jar type style. We also had a larger offering, the 40 pound bucket, as opposed to the 16 ounce jar, but our Mm -hmm. brand, which is why we, it took us a long time to get our stride in consumer sales channels was really not 
CPG type brand. It was not super refined. And that was fine for us because the restaurants didn't care. So we didn't want to invest too many resources into this brand when it was our wholesale that was carrying the business. And so it's only been recently that we've been better positioned for the channels that we're in now, also online, really improved on Amazon and on our own website and other e-commerce sellers. And now finally, a real push into uh, retail brick and mortar. Okay. So I guess, what did you have to change then to be more consumer ready? Right. We had to look prettier, like a prettier label. When we first launched Zoom, we had it in a six, and actually it was 18 ounces because it's half a kilo um, size that we were doing from Israel. And the feedback I was getting at farmer's markets, which was so valuable was, what would I ever do with 18 ounces of tahini? And so we actually (laughs) came back with an 11 ounce jar that was very similar to more of a peanut butter jar you'd see in that in that department because we wanted to switch categories. We wanted to get tahini out of the international aisle and into the nut butter category. And so we put it in a jar that was what most nut and seed spreads were sold in the States. And we really tried to um, market it a different way, I would say, to consumers. Um, So our first iteration of our retail jars was a very simple, just um, to the to the point label that mirrored what we were seeing in nut butters at the time. Okay, got it. Yeah, that makes makes a lot of sense. I think you mentioned selling to manufacturers (laughs) as well. Can you tell us just a little bit about that um, channel for, for your business? Yeah, we still don't sell to so, so many large manufacturers because the product that we sell is really, but we have found a nice stride with, um, small manufacturers that are also making great consumer packaged goods. We work with a great Halva partner, Hebel & Co. in LA. And so that's been a nice business for us that's given us the opportunity to hopefully be a part of other people putting tahini products onto the market. But another sense of manufacturing that we've found a little niche in is with subscription meal Mm -hmm. and being able to put the tahini into squeeze packs, into one ounce squeeze packs, for their kind of needs. So those are two of what we would put into like a marketing or sorry, into a, a sales bucket of manufacturing, those two types of accounts. Okay, got it. So I wanted to make sure to ask about your cookbook. You know, why did you write it? And you know, what does it do for your business? You know, how has it been used as a tool for you to sell more product? Yeah. Uh, well, I wrote it because I had the opportunity from a great, actually, customer of Zoom's is a very wonderful cookbook author named Andy Schloss, Andrew Schloss. And he came to, up to us or to me really saying, I'd love to write a cookbook. Obviously, we all know how versatile tahini is. And I really think that doing it together with your voice and credibility of Zoom behind us would be of advent- advantageous. And so mm-hmm. I only said yes, because he knows how to write cookbooks and was really kind of teaching me so much in the process. And it totally reinforces, which is all we've set out to do for 10 years now, which is not only to introduce people to tahini, but to introduce people to its versatility. And for me, if somebody were to choose to bring tahini into their home, say, because they saw a recipe of how to make hummus, I really want them to just use it again and again and again. Yes, because I sell the product, but also because it's a really special ingredient. It's very healthy. It's got, it's a 
great source of protein and calcium and iron and all these healthy fats. And when you start cooking with it, because it really changed the way that I cook and in my kitchen, it really is a fun product because it truly, when you add it to the recipe the right way, makes it better. And it's just, I feel very passionate still about people using tahini and the book really helped me kind of accomplish that on a level I never imagined I would when I started Zoom, of course. Right. Yeah. So the, the cookbook is called The Tahini Table, Go Beyond Hummus with 100 Recipes for Every Meal. How does uh, somebody go about getting that? Oh, thanks. Uh, it's available on our website. With You can pair it with other products that you know you can use for the recipes, or it's available on Amazon and really wherever books are sold. My favorite thing is I've been hearing from people that they've found it in their local libraries. And, and so that's kind of a fun way to first check out some of the recipes too, if it's in your library. Yeah, very cool. And, and your website is zoomfoods.com, right? That's right. Okay. Um, I, I wanted to, um, to just um, switch gears a little bit, you know. It, so a lot of people that we talk to on this podcast, they come really from the consumer angle, you know, yeah. going direct to, to, to consumer, you know, and generally it's online, it's through, you know, like a Shopify, you know, site or something like that, start doing ads on Facebook or Instagram, driving traffic to their website. And then, you know, they add the wholesale component to it mm. a little bit later, mm. you know, and it seems like, you know, just from our conversation, you're telling me you kind of started the other way, you started with the wholesale side. We did. Luckily, I feel so fortunate that we hit that stride because the retail, the consumer space, as we all know, is so resource intensive. You know, Zoom has started to do that in particular over the past two years, really focus into our brick and mortar retail channels. We we are and um, still maintain the number one selling tahini on Amazon, but we're also investing into these ads to get people to our website. And it's really resource intensive. And my sisters and I, we didn't have the capital to support that early on. And we had the benefits of that we talked about from from the wholesale. And so it kind of just funneled us there without us realizing how lucky we were to have that opportunity. And it's really allowed us to create the demand off of the shelves and hopefully start with a little bit of a leg up compared to if we would have gotten into even a whole region of Whole Foods at the time, the product wouldn't have moved eight years ago, five years ago. We definitely didn't have the resources to move it, right? To put it on sale or to demo it or all the marketing that goes into getting a product off of the shelves. And, but now we do, right? Like now a people are more familiar with tahini and we've been able to grow the business to be able to support that type of those types of needs. So yeah, we feel really lucky that we took the opposite route that most people do. Right. Yeah. I mean, besides it not being, you know, as capital intensive and then, you know, one of the, the benefits I think you, you mentioned a little bit earlier was it gave you time to really hone in your brand, right? Yeah. The restaurants didn't really care about the branding as much. They just cared about the quality of the product. Are there any other benefits that, you know, that you found along the way of this, of this approach of the wholesale first, you know, selling to to food service businesses to that approach? Were there any other benefits that maybe you, you discovered along the way? Yeah, I was just reflecting on this morning, I think, because I guess not as a side, Zoom is fundraising for the first time. So I'm thinking a lot about like high level business stuff. And the product has reached so many more mouths than we could have on our own. You know, the fact that people are eating tahini, whether they know it's Zoom or not, at thousands of restaurants or like we're in Sweet Green right 
right now at Sweetgreen, their special right now has a tahini dressing. It's not marketed on the menu as soon, you know, not yet at least, but Mm -hmm. it's amazing that many people are now might be eating tahini for the first time or especially for their second time or having this like stellar experience with tahini that we didn't need to do ourselves as a brand. It's really amazing to think about. It's awesome to think about, in fact, how many people have been able to consume tahini without us having to put it directly into their mouth. So that to me is invaluable, in fact. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty awesome. It's, it almost just expanded your impact. I guess it didn't almost, it did, you know? Yes, the, that's the, a perfect way to say it, yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, I know that we're, we're running short on time and you've got a hard stop. I just wanted to launch into the quick fire round. I've just got four right. questions for you. What's one tool or resource that you find invaluable? That tool or resource has really changed our team. It's Asana. We're managing projects a lot better, even processes like order processes. It's what's right for us, but that one kind of stepped up our our operations for our team. Awesome. What's one book um, that you could recommend to the audience? Presence by Amy Cuddy. Presence. Okay. And what is one piece of advice that you would give to your 21-year-old self? Oh, man. Um, Go find out if UD has a business school and see if they have any (laughs) entrepreneurial lessons uh, (laughs) and stop doing nothing or just, you know, go less fun and more thought. But yes, I wish I did do a little bit more in terms of the resources I had available at my university when I was there. And um, who is one person in your field of work, you know, maybe somebody that you look up to or another entrepreneur or another brand um, that you would love to take to lunch? Oh, man, that is a good one. And I feel like you probably even gave me these before I got on and I just didn't um, process them. So now I'm on the spot. But um, one person that I would love to take to lunch is Justin's from Justin's, you know, the nut butter company Mm -hmm. that really revolutionized the nut butter category. Yeah, they've they've done phenomenal. So, well, I I know we're at the end here, you know, I'm just uh, thinking about our audience, you know, let's think about, you know, other entrepreneurs that are launching CPG products or running CPG brand, you know, what parting advice could you give them as we close it here? You, everybody will think I'm crazy, but like really don't waste too much on your brand early on. Have a good product, learn how to sell it, learn why people want it or need it and you know, invest in the fluff, no offense. Second, uh, as good as it needs to be, like it can't be mm-hmm. terrible, obviously, but it doesn't need to be perfect to get going. I love it. Okay, that's a good note to end on. Amy, I appreciate you taking the time today. This has been great. Thank you so much. I learned a lot. This is awesome. All right. Yep. We'll talk soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. The Physical Product Movement Podcast is brought to you by Fiddle. To find out more about Fiddle and how our industry-leading inventory ops platform is giving modern brands and manufacturers full visibility into their inventory and operations, visit fiddle.io. And then make sure to search for Physical Product Movement in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Fiddle, thanks for listening.